You're listening to episode 103 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is Friday the 17th of July here in Norwich today, and I had the great pleasure of meeting up with you at Dragon Hall. That was very exciting, wasn't it? A real in-person meeting at an acceptable distance, but would also would take out coffee. It was truly a treat. Yeah, takeout from Smoky Barn. Little shout out to them, our nice coffee people from down the road. Our lovely coffee roasters. It was lovely to see them again after such a long time as well, because we're usually such regulars in that shop. I know, four months since I've been in there. Very oh, peculiar. It's lovely though. Yeah, Dragon Hall's looking lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Our chief exec, Chris, has done a good job maintaining the garden. So we've had quite an exciting week over on Discord, our relatively new online community for writers and readers. We've had a lot of new people arriving after we dropped it into the newsletter. And this is in good time as well, because we are going to be kicking off some drop-in writing sessions coming up soon. And uh, we've got people signing up for these kind of writing sprints where we can all get together at particular times and aim to write as many words as we can, or do some editing, or basically be more productive in a cooperative, peer-supported kind of way. Mm, yeah, so we we set up, or I say we, Flo, our colleague, set up these drop-in writing time sessions at Dragon Hall a while back, and they were a monthly opportunity for anyone to come along and to do a bit of writing. And yeah, the, the key thing was to just set aside an hour and a half to do a bit of writing in the company of others. And we've moved these online now. So it's great. It's an opportunity for more people to get involved. So we've set up three sessions to begin with. There's one in the morning, one in the afternoon and one at lunchtime. So hopefully we can catch people at different times of day, depending on what works best for you. And all you need to do is sign up to the free Discord community that Simon has mentioned and tune in at a certain time. And we will, yeah, our NCW staff will be there. They'll give you a timed free write an exercise and then 50 minutes of writing time and then afterwards you're welcome to carry on with the conversation with others tell us a bit about what you're writing about ask questions and just generally get to know each other so full details for our drop-in writing sessions are over on the national center for writing website under what's on or if you check out the blog yeah i'm really excited because i was never able to attend one of flo's sessions at dragon hall for various mm. childcare related reasons but because this is happening online I can just jump straight on from home and take part. Absolutely and my friend in Australia is able to take part as well. Yeah it would have been very hard for her to get to Dragon Hall for an evening. It would have been a long journey for an hour and a half session. So I hear you've also started reading Bluebird Bluebird which is our book for the book club this month. I have yeah so uh a couple of days ago, I started reading Attica Locke's Bluebird, Bluebird in anticipation of the book group. And I'm um, about halfway through already, actually. It's very, it's very compelling. It hooked straight away. You jump straight in with a, a double murder uh, in the middle of Texas and uh, just hooked my attention straight away. So really enjoying it. And she's a, Attica's a brilliant writer, actually, a real wordsmith. Yeah, no, I will be getting on with it soon. I, uh, I discovered that my brain doesn't work with audiobooks, so I'm going to have to transition over to reading words on a page, but yes. that's fine. Old school, keeping it analogue. 
Exactly. Just last thing to mention as well is that the early bird discount on our creative writing online courses is still in effect as long as you're listening to this podcast in good time. It carries on until Wednesday, which is the 22nd of July. Uh, so if you want to get a little discount on those courses and jump on board, that's the way to do it. And uh, they've been very popular so far. So yeah, make sure you get in there quick if you want to secure a place. Okay, so what's on the show today, Steph? So this conversation is between our colleague, Sarah Bauer, and one of the mentors on our Emerging Translator Mentorship Scheme, Sarah Ardazzoni, and she is our mentor for Swiss French this year. And they had a chat about the process of being a translator and what it's like to forge a bond with other authors. Yeah, so Sarah talks a lot about how important it is to have that trusted, close connection with whoever it is you're translating. And she talks about some of her techniques for making sure that there's that good understanding there. Talks about her career and how she became a translator and also examines the difference between translating different types of materials. So translating uh, a children's picture book compared to translating uh, prose fiction novel, for example. So if you're interested in translation, if you're thinking about getting into being a translator, this is a really, really good podcast full of insight from someone with tons of experience. So Sarah, um, I, I guess that the, the, the theme of these is to talk about more broadly the writers and translators life. Um, and if we were to start with the process of living and working as a translator, maybe something about how you came to be doing that for a profession and, 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 and what that life is like, what it involves, obviously translating, but maybe the, the sort of other aspects of the translator's life as well. Great. So setting out as a literary translator was not something that I intentionally did. Um, and so it's been it's been an interesting journey. I have a background in English literature. I have an English literature degree. Uh, and then I trained in physical theatre in Paris with a great teacher called Jacques Lecoq. Um, and so I was sort of immersed in Paris life for a couple of years. I was born in Brussels. I had always grown up sort of semi-bilingual uh, with very Francophile British parents who were working out there. Um, I have most of my education in the UK. Um, but that French influence was very deep culturally. I also have French-speaking family. I now have family that's moved to be in France. So it was coming at me every which way. And uh, I began, while I was studying theatre in Paris, um, advising on some translations into French from the American English of a woman who I'd written about at university called Juna Barnes. And uh, she wrote a very famous book called Nightwood, which was published by T.S. Eliot uh, with Faber and Faber. And she was part of the left bank scene of radical women in Paris between the wars, the First World War and the Second World War. And, uh, and they really fascinated me. And uh, so when I found myself living out in Paris, training in theatre, um, I went to see a presentation of her plays, her, her short plays. And that publisher, uh, L'Arche Editeur, uh, asked me if I would um, check, in a way, those translations into French, which is not the way around that we normally go. Uh, I'm, I'm used to translating into my mother tongue, although there's lots of discussion now about, about translation working both ways um, and, and translating into your second language. Um, and I was just fascinated in witnessing the journey that this immensely able, 
translator had gone on to render Juno Barnes, who is exceedingly quirky and uh, exceedingly tricky to translate and was a very tricky character. Um, <laughs> famously, um, Eugene O'Neill would call out to her from down the hallway every so often, are you still alive, Juno? In <laughs> village. And... Uh, <laughs> she sort of wrote things entitled I Could Never Be Lonely Without a Husband and she was one of the very first female writers for The New Yorker and she jumped out of windows with fire officers to experience what their jobs were. Wow. So it was quite something to witness how this woman had translated her and I think that that whetted my appetite and in a sense I was going in as a traffic warden I was just seeing you know whether there were any infelicities or whether there were any areas in which I could advise about nuance and so forth but that just intrigued me in terms of this process and I went on to um, check if you like translations into French of plays by uh, Edward Bond and also by David Hare so that was the beginning of, of the journey. And then I struggled along with an existence in physical theatre, which I loved. But by the time I got to my 30s, we were all earning tuppence halfpenny and, and reckoning that <laughs> yes. we needed other um, revenue streams. And I was doing some work in publicity at Orion Publishing at the time. And they figured I could write, so they got me writing cover blurb. And then they figured I could write French, so they got me reading a few books. And then they got me blurbing them. And, and it sort of went from there. And I was asked to translate... Um, a novel about Picasso's mistress and then another imprint in that same publishing house um, Phoenix Publishing um, offered me to uh, put in an audition as it were a sample translation piece for a book they were very interested in called um, The Small Pleasures of Life or it's the first sip of beer and other minuscule pleasures is the literal <laughs> translation and it was a series of um interconnected chapters that were sort of Proustian pieces of nostalgia about childhood, about what the things are that trigger your memories of childhood. So that might be um, the glimmer of a dynamo on a bicycle at dusk. It might be the smell of apples ripening in the cellar, etc. And what was extraordinary about it as a first endeavour for a nascent translator was that uh, they were all exercises in style and each chapter was different and each chapter was a new set of challenges, but you weren't having to do the real grunt work of continuity that you would have across a 300-page novel. Um, and I had this extraordinary editor who took the process of translation incredibly seriously. And so there I was, um, not even 30, and she would edit... Ben Ockrey in the morning and Sarah Adams as I was then in the afternoon and she didn't seem to bat an eyelid as to the fact that there might be a difference between us and oh, she gave fantastic. us the same amount of time and she edited in great detail and again in that editing process she she really taught me the journey that I needed to go on and I found it very meditative as a process I loved the headspace that this act of writing in translation gave me without the headache of having to invent the characters and the plot. And I have to say that in recent times under lockdown, um, that's really come to the fore again, because there's a lot of um, challenges that we're all having to deal with under this sense of confinement, as the French call lockdown. And to be able to travel with your mind and just go somewhere else without enormous worries, but to do really creative work within that space 
has been a real liberation. So I feel I've come full circle in terms of um, some of the wonderful benefits that, that translating can bring to you. It's quite interesting. You, you, you refer to the French um, calling lockdown confinement, which, of course, is an English word, admittedly an old fashioned one now for a woman going into labour. And mm. I wonder if there's that sense of the confinement giving birth to new ways of working and, and thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> I remember having this conversation a long time ago um, at the British Museum when I was doing a translation slam with Alain Mabonku, uh, the writer from Congo Brazzaville, uh, and Daniel Holm was chairing it and Frank Wynne was the other translator. And so the setup is that Frank and I go head to head, having both translated the identical piece. And uh, Alain Mabonku is there to hear his work rendered into different melodies, if you like, but both in the English language. Um, and I remember us talking at the end um, of course, of the 52 sentences, only one was identical between Frank's and mine. Um, but yeah, that was good going. <laughs> <laughs> we got the one. I think it was probably <laughs> something like, why? Question mark. Um, and at the end, we talked about, you know, whether at the end of the day, one person has to give birth to this baby. Um, and, and, and so, yes, these kind of gestation images do come along. Um, Mabonku, who is a really tall, uh, strong man from Congo Brazzaville, and me, who is a really short woman of Irish heritage, uh, he referred to the two of us as um, conjoined twins um, in terms of the fact that we had, which is an incredibly generous and flattering comment of him to make, um, of the fact that we have both experienced that same sort of gestation period but in, in, in very different ways. So Sometimes I think only one person can give birth to a translation. You've just got to go through that final bit yourself. Um, and sometimes I've worked very, very happily on co-translations where, where the two of you do it and you can no longer distinguish who initially translated which bits and who uh, initially edited which bits. So, um, so there is that co-labour, if we're going to keep with the, with the pregnancy metaphors. <laughs> That's sort of a possibility as well. Yeah. Do you, do you have a preference, Sarah, to work with uh, living authors because of all these things you're talking about, because of that sort of sense that you create a new text between you? I absolutely do. And I think that's for a variety of reasons. I think I don't come from an academic background with the French. I haven't done the years of studies. I haven't read historically as much as I should have done. So I simply wouldn't feel qualified and confident um, uh, working on some of the classics. I did have the honour of, of, of sort of translating a new version of um, of Dumas' The Nutcracker. Um, and that was very exciting. But but generally, I work very much with living authors. And uh, I think that reflects, in a way, um, my sense of what the act of translation is, because fundamentally, it has for me to be an act of the warmest, the most uh, generous hospitality that you can offer, because you are deeply desiring to make that other writer and their writing feel at home in your culture and your language. And I think where for me the relationship and the 
creative energy of, of of translating another person's writing really comes alive is is when that sense of 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 hospitality really lands and um and you know that might be quite a journey with the writer it might go across several books so I have um, had the great honour of translating a French Algerian writer called Faiz again um, for the last 16 years and I hope I've just finished translating um, her fifth novel and I hope that I will uh, embark on her next one before too long and just seeing how that journey has evolved how we've built up trust how we've built up friendship and so that act of hospitality ultimately becomes an act of love I think in terms of what you want to do for that other person to enable them to reach readers that they couldn't in their own language and to enable empathy to occur between you know readers in the anglosphere and that writer um and 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 that journey changes a lot along the way and the more trust and the more confidence that gets built up um the more i'm able to come back to her and ask her in quite detail about some things and sometimes she might decide that something she wants to change it for the English version and, that, and that's happened quite a bit in our process so we really enjoyed that collaboration and I, I don't think that would work with every writer I was collaborating with it would just be too damn labour heavy for starters um, but in this instance it's sort of part of the joy that there is a, a to and a fro and an ebb and a flow and she can be a different person when she wants to in the English language to the way that she might be perceived in France. Um, and again, that's changing now. She's interestingly, she's doing incredibly well going into what they call the rentrée littéraire. So that's the um, the literary return, if you like, in September every year. So here we are going into September 2020, you know, at the height of the publishing industry, asking itself a lot of questions about Black Lives Matter. And this writer who has been tackling those themes for, well, since she was as a writer since she was 15, is, is being taken perhaps more seriously than she was before. Um, and, and that's an interesting moment for her. Good news for her, I hope, as well. It's great. Um, are you able to say, you know, obviously being the soul of discretion, but are there any instances you can think of where the relationship with the writer has not gone so smoothly? So I translated an author once and I entered into it knowing that the author had a tricky reputation and that previously translators had been taken off the case according to that author's request. Um, but this particular challenge uh, in terms of the text was one that I was very excited about taking on. And so what I decided to do was a preemptive strike. So the author didn't know me and I didn't know them. Um, and I'd obviously got the gig in terms of my sample and that had been approved both by the author and the publisher. And then I had developed it to a certain extent. Um, now, I wasn't about to commit the fatal error of handing a draft over to an author because they're only going to see the faults at that stage what you need to be doing is asking them the questions that give you the answers you need and, and that build their trust. Um, and I 
decided to go on the offensive and I went out to uh, the city where this author lives and I met with them and I said, I want to ask you a raft of questions about your humour and how it works and what the dynamic is here. And just so that we're on a page about how I think we're making this work in English. And we had a fantastic three hours of talking through all sorts of things um, and laughing a lot and understanding that um, in humour we met, we got each other, we could see how it was going to transfer and it was going to be okay. And so I could see the feathers smoothing themselves back down or the prickles flattening, if you like. And I could see that the author understood that I was doing everything in my power to recreate the dynamic of what was a very dazzling wit and what was working at real pace in this text. And once they'd understood that I was coming from a place of goodwill on the one hand and dedication and I hope um, sufficient craft on the other, they were able to breathe easy and relax. And that had a massively beneficial effect on the translation because what it meant was that when I got back to the UK and carried on working, I would have tiny little questions which I wouldn't have dared ask before because I'd have been worried that they would worry the author and the author would start thinking, well, if she's asking that, then, you know, what else is going on? This is just the small stuff. Heavens knows what's going on with the big fish she needs to fry. Because I'd won that author's confidence, they were, in fact, delighted to answer those trivial questions. Um, and, and I think they felt it showed due diligence. But if I hadn't kind of made that um, breakthrough, I don't think that would have been the case. Of course, it's not always practical, um, either, you know, financially or otherwise, to travel to the city uh, where your author lives. But in this case, it, um, it got us to a different level. So that I guess that was one where I headed it off. It's probably um, a particularly good thing to do when you've got to find common ground over humour, because that is difficult between individuals and, and sometimes even more difficult between cultures. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, quite commonly, quite commonly, angular notions of uh, political correctness uh, and French notions or otherwise of political correctness <laughs> can be pretty divergent, let's say. And so, again, that's about your relationship with your author, how much you feel you can say, um, you know, to what extent it might be worth them revisiting this and thinking about a new readership, to what extent that might be tedious, not worth a candle, let's cut, um, to what extent if you were to translate it literally, that might open them to accusations which would be false, um, you know, and which wouldn't have been relevant in the original language. So, I think I think different sensitivities and sensibilities around political correctness are an interesting one. Indeed, yeah. Um, Humour leads me to the fact, Sarah, that you have done a lot of work on translating picture books, um, mm. both adult ones and children's ones. And mm. um, I've had the immense privilege of twice attending a workshop that you do, which involves um, thinking about translation in visual terms and mm. drawing monsters and all sorts of exciting things like that. It's great fun. But I wonder... Um, if there's anything in particular about the approach to translating a picture book that's different to translating one which is just text? Absolutely there is. And and for me, it's been um, 
incredibly nourishing and enriching as a process. So is the word kinesthetic, kinesthetic? I never know how to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it either, but I know what word you mean. I think it's kinesthetic, but I wouldn't stake my life on that. It's that kind of 3D dimension and colour and energy that you have when you're translating picture books. And at one level, it's like translating poetry because it's so condensed. Um, The text is so distilled and so brief. Uh, So every single word weighs and you have got to be incredibly robust in the way that you find to translate that. Um, And that word is within a whole visual context, which you wouldn't have if it was just text. So that word not only has to capture everything you want in such a brief, concise text, but it has to play off the visuals and it has to work with them. It has to belong to them. It has to riff with them. And so the decisions become not merely semantic and not merely rhythmic, but they also become visual. A very simple example is that when I was translating Johann Sval's uh, graphic novel version of The Little Prince, so he abridged the original text with the permission of the Saint-Exupéry estate and Gallimard, um, so that the text was probably about 70% of, of the original. Um, and he did completely new illustrations for it, and he presented it in a sort of graphic novel format. Um, and so had I been translating 70% of The Little Prince for a text version with Saint-Exupéry's original illustrations, that would have been one thing. But I wasn't. I was translating them to cohabit in a visual universe created by Johann Svar that was profoundly integral to the original and deeply different and promiscuous and playful um, and modern at the same time. And so my translation had to capture both that original and its new context and the visuals it was alongside. So we talk a lot about air in publishing, which is simply the white space that you have around the edge of a page. And when you're translating speech bubbles, for example, you need to know that there's enough of that uh, for the words to breathe. So sometimes it can be as simple as that, you know, that decides, makes you come to the decision to sort of lower the word count or simplify the word. And uh, I've had very interesting conversations on this subject with my friend and colleague, the great Roz Schwartz. So coincidentally, she was translating the full Little Prince with the original illustrations at the same time. Very cleverly. She didn't tell me about this until after she'd done it. And then we got talking and I think we ended up on the Today programme, our our five seconds of fame, talking about this process. Um, And so she had translated the mouton as lamb and I had translated it as sheep. And my decision was really rooted in the appearance of the little prince in the Johann Svars visuals and that plosive of sheep and the cartoony effect of it and the childishness of it worked in my visual universe. And in Roses, where she was much more sonically driven, it was lamb that worked. So that just gives you an example of the sort of the the, the different considerations you have to take into account. At a practical level, 
the other thing that's wonderful about picture books is that they are short, they are poetic, um, and they are very, very different from translating a novel of 100,000 words. And uh, I'm not a very good continuous long distance runner. I need to sort of punctuate the long books with different rhythms and other stuff and new challenges. And so uh, picture books are brilliant at that level. Marvellous. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Sarah and Sarah for that fascinating chat. If you have questions or would like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find us on Facebook and our website is at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you can also sign up to the newsletter. And if you would like to join our Discord community of writers and readers, you can find a link to do that down in the show notes. Please do subscribe, rate and review The Writing Life because it helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. (music) 